You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Let me ask you a question. Just what were you doing on November 22nd of 1963? Well, maybe you weren't born yet or you're too young to remember, but that day is most likely deeply embedded into the memory of just about everyone else. And that's because that was the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. But did you ever wonder what else was going on on that day? I mean, what else was in the news? What was going on in sports? Did any other famous person die on that day? What was the number one movie, the number one TV show, or the number one song? Do you have a clue? I certainly didn't. And that's the goal of this new segment of the podcast, what I'm calling the Yestercast, to find out what else was happening on that day. And while we take this journey back in time, you'll find out why a man in Texas took out an ad in a newspaper for a real live elephant. And you'll learn about a bank robbery in which the bank earned money in the end. And how about a man who shot a boy simply because he thought he was a squirrel? And then there's a story of an escapee who had been in jail almost the whole time. Well, all those stories and a whole lot more are coming up next. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the first episode of the Useless Information Yestercast. Useless information. As I start the recording of this first Yestercast, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II is well underway. In fact, I have two computer monitors and it's playing on the side monitor with the sound off. But did you try to watch the nightly news on the day that she actually died? I commented to my wife, Mary Jane, that you'd never know that there was anything else going on in the world. Yeah, clearly there was. I mean, there's a war in Ukraine and so on. And that's the whole point of this new segment of the podcast. You know, there have been days in history, you know, just like this one, when one single event so dominated the news that everything else was totally missed. And that's what I want to do here. Choose a day in history and see what else was going on. And the day that I decided to focus on first was November 22nd, 1963, the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Now, I was only three months old at the time, so clearly I have no memory of that day. And I'd like to tell you I know exactly when I came up with this idea, but I can't. But luckily, Google, I had set up a spreadsheet for this, it says that I set up the spreadsheet on October 30th of 2015. So it's something that's been bouncing around in my brain for quite some time. And I guess before we dive into things, I should tell you what this podcast is not. It's not about the assassination. You know, that story's been recounted many times in print, on TV, and in the movies, and so on. And of course, there's countless conspiracies out there. So I'm not going to do a retelling of the assassination. Nor is this Yestercast intended to be all-inclusive. I'm focusing mostly on the little things, you know, the obscure and quirky stories I've always told on this podcast. I should also mention that since many of these stories that I'm about to tell you were distributed over the wire service, you know, Associated Press, United Press, and so on, I basically worked off of about a dozen newspapers. 
Some like the New York Times and the Boston Globe, while those were chosen on purpose, while others like the Bristol, Virginia, Tennessean and the Los Angeles Citizen News that you'll hear me mention several times throughout this, they were selected randomly. And that was mainly to give me a broad cross-section of what was out there at the time. So let's set the clock on our time machine back to November 22nd, 1963 and see what else was going on. So I thought a good place to start would be with the actual headlines announcing the assassination. Now, the assassination took place around 12.30 p.m. in Dallas, Texas. That's central time. So clearly all the morning papers across the United States, even on the West Coast, which is around 9.30 uh, in the morning, they had all gone to press. So none of them covered the assassination at that point. But after that, uh, the papers in the afternoon and the evening editions would pick up the headlines. For example, the headline in the Akron Beacon Journal reads, Kennedy is wounded by Dallas gunmen. And there's just one story going down the middle of the page with a picture of Kennedy. Now, the rest of the front page are just the regular everyday stories that they would have printed. So clearly, they rushed this to press. They removed one story, put the new headline at the top, and left the remainder of the front page intact. Now, Los Angeles Times ran two headlines, two front pages, and this is because the story changed. The first one reads, Extra, Assassinate Kennedy. Hail of bullets cut down president in Dallas, Texas. Washington Associated Press. Government sources said that President Kennedy is dead. Yet if you read the rest of the story, it says Dallas UPI. President Kennedy was shot and gravely wounded by a would-be assassin Friday, and it goes on from there. So clearly the news was just breaking when they went to press. And then it must have been a short time later they issued this front page. Extra, Kennedy dead, shot in Dallas, Governor Connolly hit. Dallas, Texas Associated Press. President John F. Kennedy, 36th President of the United States, was shot to death Friday by a hidden assassin armed with a high-powered rifle. And then the story continues from there. But if you look at the two front pages, the picture's the same, the setup is the same. They've just uh, swapped out the stories. The Los Angeles Citizen's Times simply says, martyred with an exclamation point in big, bold letters. Then there's a giant picture of Kennedy with a box around it. And underneath it simply says, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, May 29th, 1917, November 22nd, 1963. That's it. That's the entire front page. The Bristol, Virginia, Tennessean took a different approach. They basically wrapped their newspaper in a new front page. And the headline reads, extra, 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 four exclamation points there. President is slain. And then the entire front page is covered with stories about the assassination and what other people think about it. But at the very bottom, it says second page one is on page four. And then under that, it says because of the importance of the story on the assassination of President Kennedy, the regular news of the day appears on page four in the form of a second quote, page one. And I'll just read through some of these others very quickly. Uh, the Columbia record that's in South Carolina. Extra, extra, Kennedy shot dead. The Boston Globe. Extra, extra, president slain. Assassin's bullet fells Kennedy on Dallas Street. Shot in head, he slumps into Jacqueline's lap. Texas governor also hit. Lyndon Johnson escapes. In the San Angelo Standard Times, Dallas gunman slays Kennedy. Connolly is hit by ambush shot. Dallas Associated Press. Two priests stepped out of Parkland's hospital emergency ward today and said President Kennedy died of his bullet wounds. 
from the Windsor Star, which is in Windsor, Ontario. It says Kennedy murdered in Dallas, Texas. The headline of the Reno Evening Gazette is Kennedy dead, Lyndon Johnson to take office. And here on the East Coast, we have the Poughkeepsie Journal. It's in Poughkeepsie, New York. And it says assassin kills Kennedy. And I'll throw in just one more. This is from the Manitowoc Herald Times. That's in Wisconsin. And it reads, Kennedy assassinated. And down the right column, there's a summary of what happened. But what's very interesting is the article under Kennedy's picture to the left. And the headline reads, loved every minute. Jackie charms Texans with campaign smile. Now, clearly the bulk of this front page was set before the assassination, and that's why the story's here. And I'll just summarize it quickly for you. Um, Basically, the story's about Mrs. Kennedy being back in politics after a long absence, and it points out that she's a really good campaigner, and she had charmed thousands of people in San Antonio, Houston, and Fort Worth the previous day. And that was the beginning of a three-day tour with her husband, and it was pointed out this is the first stumping she had done since he was nominated for president. She had not been on the campaign trail since. And that's mainly because she participated in the primary campaigns, but she stayed in the background during the run-up to the election because she was pregnant with her son, John Jr. Now, one thing the article uh, pointed out is that Kennedy, President Kennedy, had been criticized for walking in front of his wife uh, for various other events. So this time, and this kind of seems like fluff compared to the news that came later in the day, she would emerge from the presidential jet first. Clearly, he got the message. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Kennedy assassination. I want to talk about other stories. So I'll just share two more with you. The first one's the United Press International story, and I'll just summarize it for you. And that is that the parents of uh, John F. Kennedy, they were in seclusion at their family compound in Hannesport, Massachusetts. Of course, there's dad, that's Joseph, he was 75 at the time, and mom, Rose, was 72. They learned of the assassination by a workman who worked at the family compound, and he had heard the news on the radio. But it also said that the elder Kennedy was napping at the time that his son was gunned down. And just to make sure that they were safe, eight state policemen and three Secret Service officers stood guard outside the compound. Now, the next story, the Los Angeles Citizen News determined that seven consecutive presidents of the United States, all elected in years divided by 20, had died in office. Oddly, no other president elected during that same 120-year span had done the same. And then there's a quick summary of the presidents. 1840 was William Harrison, who died in office. In 1860, Ev. Lincoln, of course, was assassinated. 1880, Garfield's also assassinated. 1900, McKinley, again assassinated. In 1920, President Harding died in office. 1940, we all know that Roosevelt died in office. And here we are when this story is written. In 1960, Kennedy was assassinated. Now, in 1980, Reagan was elected president, and there was an attempted assassination, but he did survive, so he broke the curse there. And, of course, in the year 2000, uh, Bush was elected, and nothing happened. Now, prior to the assassination, there were other political stories in the news In particular, the conflict in Vietnam was heating up. But the headlines of the day typically consisted of Republican attacks on Kennedy. They wanted him out. Keep in mind, this is November of 1963. The following year, there would be a presidential election. So it's in their best interest to make Kennedy look as bad as possible. For example, there's this UPI story that has the headline, Nixon insists GOP must get Kennedys out. And just to quickly summarize it, it says that former Vice President Nixon was in Dallas on a business trip, 
and said that the 1964 Republican presidential nominee, he had to challenge Kennedy on his presidential record, not his persona. And that kind of goes back to the first televised debate between the two men in the previous election. Let's just say it didn't go very well for Nixon, and it may have cost him the election, although that is debatable. Nixon said, quote, His public relations is tremendous, but his performance is poor. He added that Kennedy had a record of non-achievement and that he was just, quote, brave talk and no action, and that Kennedy had caused a deterioration in foreign policy, particularly towards Latin America and Southeast Asia, and, quote, what is apparently our permanent unemployment. And while Nixon denied that he'd be seeking the Republican nomination, he did state, quote, I'm going to work as hard as I can to get the Kennedys out of there. We can't afford four more years of that kind of administration. And Nixon wasn't the only one speaking out against the Kennedy administration. On that same day, the Associated Press ran an article titled, quote, GOP already making election year sounds. And of course, it went on to quote a number of other leading Republicans of the day. New York Senator Jacob Javits said, quote, things have gone from bad to worse. Texas Senator John Tower, quote, our international standing has clipped low indeed. And then there's Illinois Senator Everett M. Jerkson, who is the leader of the Senate Republicans. He said that President Kennedy, quote, was engaging in dangerous economic brinkmanship. And lastly, there's Indiana's Representative Charles Halleck, who's the Republican House leader. He claimed that the Kennedy administration, quote, adds up to almost total failure for three empty years. But as you know, it's very easy to criticize when you're not the one in power. And in response to these criticisms, Senate Democratic leader Mike Mansfield suggested the following, that critics of Kennedy should ask themselves, quote, what would I do if I were in the president's shoes? As for Kennedy, and of course it was assumed he was going to run for president again if he had survived, it was forecast that his main campaign themes would be peace and prosperity. And he had already been laying the groundwork for this, and he pointed to, quote, significant progress on the economic front. In other political news, there's an Associated Press story that says that both the Soviet Union and the United States proposed on the previous day that the United Nations declare that outer space should be used, quote, for the benefit and interests of all mankind. Franz Match of Austria, who's the chairman of the 28-nation, I love this name, quote, United Nation Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, he said that the committee would take up the proposed declaration before they submitted it to the full assembly for a final vote. And I'll just read this next one word for word. Headline is, Moon Rockets Huge, Cape Canaveral, Florida, Associated Press. The mammoth Saturn V rocket, which will ferry the first American astronauts to the moon, hopefully before 1970, will stand 360 feet tall, weigh 3,000 tons, and produce 7.5 million pounds of thrust. Now, I'm not going to convert that to the metric system, but take my word, that is a lot. In fact, I believe these rockets, the Saturn V rockets, are still the largest rockets ever sent into space. And my wife and I, maybe about seven, eight years ago, were at the Kennedy Space Center, and they have one laying down on its side. And you have to see it to believe it. It is just immense. And now for my favorite political story of the day. 
Uh, and this one is from the San Angelo Standard Times. And if you've been reading the paper between November 15th and November 20th of that year, that's two days before the assassination, and you looked in the classifieds under personal notices, you would have seen the following. Wanted, elephant for parade. Price must be reasonable. Needed March 1964. Phone 949-4128 after 5. I gotta say, it's not every day that you see an ad in the newspaper for someone needing an elephant. So what's going on here? Well, it turns out that two guys, that's Max Preston and Dick Funk, were having a cup of coffee and arguing over politics. And at the very end, Preston turned to Funk and he said, you know, if you really want to do something for me, get me an elephant. And that's exactly what Funk did. In fact, he said, quote, so I ran an ad in the Standard Times with his telephone number. And amazingly, he got replies. Uh, Preston said the following, quote, First thing I knew about it was on Friday just before the football game when I got a call from some kid. He then goes on to explain that the kid said that he had a baby elephant tied on the corner of Beauregard and Chadburn. And it clearly was a joke, so uh, Preston moved on from that. But believe it or not, that was the only prank call that he got. Then a San Angelo woman called and said she was going to Corpus Christi that weekend to visit some friends, and maybe she could find an elephant there if one was available. But probably the best lead was a woman who was passing through San Angelo with eight trained seals, and she was exhibiting those to grade schools in the area. And she said, hey, if you want to use my seals, feel free. But she also gave him the name and address of a circus which wintered in Alamo, Texas. At least Preston had a lead, and he said, quote, I'll write them and check on it, but I don't know. It really all just boiled down to money. Quote, I would like to have an elephant if I could afford it, but I don't know how much it will cost to transport an elephant to San Angelo. And you're probably still scratching your head, why did he need an elephant? Well, it turns out that Preston was the chairman of the Tom Green County Republican Committee. And what are Republicans? What's their symbol? It's elephants. He wanted to use the elephant in the San Angelo Fat Stock Show and Rodeo Parade in August. Quote, with a sign on it saying something like, join GOP. Preston really wanted something that he could enter into the parade. But, you know, of course, he wasn't sure how much money the committee was willing to pay. Quote, I doubt it'd be worth too many dollars. We can use them in too many other ways. And when it came to Funk, you know, the guy who took out the ad, he said, one thing I'd like to do with this elephant is to stake it in front of his house. In financial news, it's reported that the New York Stock Exchange, as well as the American Stock Exchange, and additional stock exchanges across the country all shut their doors due to the assassination. In addition, trading was halted in commodity future markets and in corporate and U.S. government bonds. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged 21.16 points to 711.49. That was a drop of 2.9%. Now, to put that into perspective, today, assuming the stock market Dow Jones is over 30,000 now, it would have to fall at least 870 points to have the same decline today. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you're probably familiar with the story that's called The Case of the Phantom Vegetable Oil. That was podcast number 109, and I did that back in January of 2018. And in that story, a guy named Tino DeAngelis tried to corner the market on vegetable oil. 
And in doing so, he nearly brought down the stock market. And they used the cover of Kennedy's assassination to keep the stock markets closed and, of course, uh, fix the problems behind the scenes. So if you've never heard that story, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's without a doubt one of the most popular stories that I've ever recorded. And in other financial news, is a story about shortening, at least the manufacturing of shortening. It turns out that 10 shortening manufacturers and 12 individuals were taken to court because they were charged with price fixing in the Western states. The trial had begun on October 1st, but Federal District Court Judge Jesse W. Curtis decided to throw out the charges. He felt that the government had not provided enough evidence. Now, I'm not going to go through all the names, but some of them are very famous. Glidden Company, Armour & Company, Lever Brothers, Procter & Gamble, Swift & Company, Wesson Oil, and so on. Well, when it came to financial matters, not everything was bad news. Take, for example, this story from Tatterford, England, and it's about a guy named Anthony Duckworth. You see, Anthony had just turned 21, and he came into a great inheritance from his great aunt. Her name was Mrs. Cecil Duckworth, and she had just one little clause added to her will, and if he followed that, he got everything. If he didn't, he got nothing. And it was really simple. All Anthony needed to do was add the name of Chad to his name. That was her maiden name. If he didn't do that, he got nothing. Anyway, hmm, it was a tough decision for him. Should he or shouldn't he? Well, he did. He became Anthony Duckworth Chad, and this is what he inherited. You ready? In cash, he got 79,000 pounds or $221,200. Adjusted for inflation, that's $2.1 million today. He also got a 2,000-acre estate worth 200,000 pounds or $560,000 back then. That's an estate worth $5.4 million today. On that estate was a 40-room Tudor mansion, and he also became the squire of Tatterford. You know what? For all that, I'll add Chad to my name. That's a really good deal. Next up, we have a story about SNH green stamps, and I've talked about these before on the podcast. Anyway, for those of you too young, what would happen is years ago, you'd go to a supermarket or another store and you'd make a purchase. And the more money you spent, the more green stamps they'd give you. And as you gathered more and more of these green stamps, you'd put them into books. And once you filled the books, you would go to a redemption center and trade them in for various prizes. Well, eventually the stores that gave out these green stamps realized they couldn't compete with the stores that weren't giving them out because there was a cost to giving out those stamps. The stores that weren't giving them out were able to have lower prices and they started losing business. So the stores either went out of business or they stopped giving out the green stamps. Anyway, let's suppose you have a pile of these green stamps. You got to go somewhere and trade them in. You go to your local redemption center. Well, if you were living in Bristol, Tennessee, back in November of 1963, they were opening a brand new redemption center at 1958 West State Street. What's really cool about State Street in Bristol there is it divides. It's a border between two states. On one side of the street, you're in Virginia, and on the other side, you're in Tennessee. Well, this Green Stamp Redemption Center was in Tennessee. 
The article brags that the new center has modern decor and it has more than 1,600 brand name merchandise items to choose from. So you can take all those stamps and get some really, really cool things. Of course, don't go today. The store is no longer there. And here's one more financial story for you. In London, the emerald-laden crown of the Andes, which was studded with 453 emeralds weighing 1,251 carats, and the total crown, the total crown weighed 6 pounds or 2.72 kilograms. It was sold in just 90 seconds to the Amsterdam diamond firm of Asher's for $154,000. That may seem like a bargain, but that is about $1.5 million today. The crown had been made by Spanish artisans back in the 16th century from Incan treasures that the Spanish had seized during their conquest of Peru. Then, in 1914, Archbishop Arbolito of Colombia, he received papal permission to sell the crown, and his goal was to use the proceeds to build an orphanage, a hospital, and a home for the aged. Negotiations were underway to sell it to Russian Tsar Nicholas, but then World War I broke out and he was assassinated, so that was the end of that deal. It never got sold until this sale in 1963. So it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about what things cost back then. And I just wrote down uh, some of the prices. For example, a gallon of gas was 30 cents per gallon. Adjusted for inflation, that'd be $2.75 per gallon. Right now, here in the United States, on average, it's about $3.68 per gallon although there is a war in Ukraine that is driving up prices worldwide. A stamp, you know, to mail a letter was five cents, which would be about 46 cents today. The post office now charges 60 cents to do so. Federal minimum wage back then was $1.25, adjusted for inflation, that's $11.46 today, although it's only set at $7.25 today. If you wanted to throw your money into a savings account, the Brooklyn Savings Bank was paying 4.25% APY. Now, local banks right now are paying very little, but if you go online, you can get upwards of around 2% or so. And then I just looked through the various papers to see what things were costing back then. For example, there's a store called Bloomstein that was at West 125th Street in New York City. And they advertised the Big Caesar motorized Roman warship by Remco. It was a toy. And it says, as seen on TV, fight real battles with two complete armies firing catapults. Drivers, horses, chariots, fortress. Battery operated. $7.77. What a bargain. Well, adjusted for inflation, that's about $70 today. That's an expensive toy. If you went to the Corvette supermarket in New York City, and uh, Corvettes was a big department store. I didn't know they had supermarkets. It's long defunct, but Corvettes was a chain of department stores. They were selling turkeys. Keep in mind, this is right around Thanksgiving here in the United States. They were selling turkeys that were 20 pounds and up at 28 cents per pound. That would be about $2.71 per pound today. If it was a smaller bird between 16 and 18 pounds, it was 32 cents a pound or $3.10 per pound today. But honestly, turkeys are a lot cheaper at Thanksgiving today. And that's simply because the stores use it as a loss leader. They hope that you'll come into the store, buy the turkey, 
and of course buy everything else that goes with it, and that's where they make their money. Now, here's a product that I saw being sold in many stores across the country at the same exact price. So I'm guessing the company put it out at that. Uh, the first one I saw was at Bywise, which was at 115 West 45th Street in Manhattan. They were advertising a General Electric television that measured 11 inches diagonally. That's 28 centimeters. Think about that. That's a tiny screen, 11 inches diagonally. And they say that it weighed 12 pounds or 5.4 kilograms and was, quote, light and packed with picture power. The price, it sounds like a bargain at $99. But think about it. This is 1963. $99 was a lot of money. If you adjust this for inflation, that's $958 today. Can you imagine spending $958 for a tiny, tiny TV today? Nobody would do it. In fact, the price seems so outrageous to me that I went to another website that does inflationary calculations and it came up with nearly the identical price. Hard to believe. And here are just a few more prices to share with you. The Totem Department Store in Phoenix, Arizona. They were selling a 1964 Thomas organ for $499.95. That's nearly $4,900 today. And the ad did say, quote, lowest price organ in Thomas history. Then there was the McDonald's at 51 Tunnel Road in Asheville, North Carolina. And it's still there to this day. They were selling cheeseburgers for 20 cents each. That's $1.83 each today. Now, my local McDonald's is selling them for a buck a piece, although I do know that's a promotional item today. Or how about the radio equipment company in Billings, Montana? They had an RCA Whirlpool two-speed three-cycle washing machine for $239.95 with a trade-in. That would be about $2,200 for a simple washing machine today. And finally, the citizens in Atlanta, Georgia. They were selling a Sunbeam cordless toothbrush. Now, this is rechargeable, and it came with four brush heads for $13.88. Adjusted for inflation, that's $127 today. That just seems crazy. So I went to another online calculator and entered all the information that I had, because this just seems crazy, $127 for a cordless toothbrush. And here's what it says, and I just filled these values in. If in 1963 I purchased an item for, and I put in $13.88, then in 2022 the same item would cost, this is even higher, $134.34. So that value of $127 is spot on. And it wouldn't be the news if there wasn't some crime. Now, these are all fairly short, and most of them are a little quirky, and I'm just going to read them word for word. Uh, a few of them I may paraphrase, but in general, I'll read them word for word. And the first one has the headline, A Pair of Glasses Might Have Helped. Manhasset, New York, United Press International. Thomas Libby 8, Flower Hill, New York, was shot in the head by a nearsighted youth who thought he was firing his rifle at a squirrel police said. The victim was in critical condition at the Manhasset Medical Center. Michael Collins, Munsey Park, said he was in his bedroom when he saw an object he believed to be a squirrel, loaded his rifle, and fired it. 
his victim was lying on a lawn reading a book. I did do some further checking on this. On December 18th, that's about a month later, Judge Douglas Young placed Collins on probation for one year. As for the victim, that's Thomas Libby, it was reported that he was still recovering. And next up, we have one that's titled Bank Burglary Done in Reverse. Cornelia, Georgia, United Press International. Somebody broke into the bank of Cornelia through the roof. It might have been Santa Claus. Officials said not a penny of the bank's money was missing, and they found a half-full bottle of whiskey and an additional $92 in small bills scattered about. This one's really short. Headline is, well, it worked. London, United Press International. When three robbers invaded her candy store, Mrs. Patricia Connolly drove them off empty-handed by hurling candy jars at them. Next up, we have Pepper Foil's Robbery Bid, Youth Jailed. Kitchener, Ontario, Canadian Press. A handful of Pepper Foil to robbery attempt by Ross Harold Dankward, 19 of Kitchener, a court was told here on Thursday. Dankward pleaded guilty to a charge of attempted robbery and was sentenced to 15 months definite and 15 months indeterminate. Police said Dankward entered Albert Abbott's confectionery store on November 8th and demanded money. Abbott, who is 60 years old, reached under the counter for a fistful of pepper and threw it in Dankward's eyes. Dankward staggered blindly from the store. He was arrested soon afterwards. If only he had those candy jars. This headline reads, Divers Discover Fake Money Plates. Lake Toplitz, Austria, Reuters. Divers searching Lake Toplitz for a rumored Nazi treasure hoard Thursday brought up a printing set with three counterfeit engraving plates of British five-pound banknotes. And here's one with a headline that reads, Man Halts Bridge Leap by Woman. An escapee from the South Carolina State Hospital was snatched from the bridge railing over the Broad River on Highway 76 north of Columbia as she attempted to jump into the river this morning. An unidentified employee of the Southern Bell Telephone Company was crossing the bridge when he saw the young white woman as she started over the rail, the sheriff's office said. The man stopped and ran to the woman and pulled her back over the railing to the sidewalk where he had a fight furiously with her in an effort to hold her, deputies said. Several motorists saw the man's plight and notified the sheriff's office. Deputies said when they arrived on the scene, the woman was still struggling with the man. She was returned to the state hospital. And the last crime story for today reads as follows. Escapee found safe in jail, Pensacola, Florida, Associated Press. The search for escapee Raymond James has ended. The 23-year-old Negro slipped away two months ago during a recess of his trial on escape and criminal assault. Officers located him Wednesday while checking fingerprint records. He had been in the county jail here for seven weeks after being picked up on a burglary charge. Now I have for you a bunch of stories that I've loosely put in the category of science and medicine. And the first one's fairly lengthy, so I'm just going to summarize it. But the headline reads, Group told birth control methods are widespread. This is from the Columbia Record in South Carolina, 
And it says the pregnancy rates of married couples who practice birth control through the use of the available techniques were outlined this morning at the first statewide conference on Planned Parenthood meeting at the Hotel Wade Hampton. And it was Dr. Alan F. Guttmucker, who's the president of Planned Parenthood of America, who was the guest speaker. And he discussed the different types of birth control. And I'm just going to read this quote here. It says, quote, if couples live together and practice no birth control, they could expect 80 pregnancies per 100 years if the lifespan and childbearing years lasted that long, he said. He continued, with the rhythm method as practiced with the supervision of a physician, a couple can expect 16 to 18 pregnancies per 100 years. He added, depending on the individual users, their education on the method of use, Couples using some other methods of birth control could expect 5 to 20 children per 100 years. Then he goes on to explain about the pill. He claimed that the pregnancy rate is zero and that it's human error basically for getting to take the pill during the 20-day period that could account for a pregnancy rate of about 2 per 100 years. He also added that in recent studies, 81% of American couples have practiced some form of birth control at some point in their lives. He also added that college-educated people use birth control methods more widely than do poor, less-educated groups. And I do think there's a typo in the article. It doesn't say poor, it says pooper. And I believe he meant poor. He summarized a Chicago study that showed among black people there were 37 births per 1,000 black people. Then there were 29 births per 1,000 among poorer whites and 21 births per 1,000 among white-collar workers. And he says, quote, there's a high differential between ethnic groups and social classes as far as birth rate is concerned. But he did point out that poor, less educated people will use birth control methods if they can learn how to use them. The article also points out that the primary purpose of Planned Parenthood is to inform people on planning parenthood and on birth control. And the goal in South Carolina, this is a new organization for South Carolina at the time, it was to aid the underprivileged, overpopulated families in learning where they can get this information. So are all those numbers still correct today? I haven't a clue. I'll let you do the research on that. Next up, we have something a little bit more lighthearted, and it's titled Quince Do This Sunday. What's it like to have Quince in the family? You will find out Sunday as the Virginia Tennessean presents the latest pictures of America's Quince. A full page of pictures, the first to appear in any newspaper in this country, will be featured. Join the Fisher family this Sunday in the combined edition of the Virginia Tennessean and the Herald Courier. Now, uh, this story is a little out of context, so I did a little research. And it turns out these quints belong to Andrew and Marianne Fisher of Aberdeen, South Dakota. They had four boys and a girl. They were the first surviving quintuplets ever in the United States. And they weren't all of the same egg. There's actually three eggs involved. There was one set of triplets and two fraternal twins. Amazingly, the couple already had five children prior to this. They had four girls and a boy ages three to seven. They would also have another daughter the following year. Unfortunately, the couple did divorce in 1980, and Mrs. Fisher died in 2012 and Mr. Fisher in 2015. 
And I've always wondered how parents can tell the difference between identical twins or triplets or whatever. And this story kind of goes with that. Which twin needs pump? Tacoma, Washington, Associated Press. When you have two-year-old identical twins, trouble comes in double doses. Thursday, Lita, <clears throat> uh, Rita swallowed some powerful pain pills. Which twin needed the stomach pump, wondered their mother, Mrs. Hannah McIntyre. And you know how this is going to end. Doctors pumped out both stomachs, a solution not particularly pleasing to the innocent twin, whoever that was. And here's another one from Columbia, South Carolina. Headline reads, Father delivers baby in auto. Columbia Record Orangeburg Bureau. Orangeburg. An Orangeburg father, shaken but otherwise all right, lost the race with a stork here Wednesday and delivered his own son on the back seat of an auto within one block of the Orangeburg Regional Hospital. Harry James Monroe Sr. delivered Junior when he miscalculated on the distance from his home to the hospital. Both mother and Junior are doing fine. The child, reported in excellent condition at the hospital, was born en route to the hospital while Mrs. Monroe's brother, Daniel Williamson, was driving the car. And how about another baby story while we're at it? Resting Well, Cleveland, Tennessee, Associated Press. When Janet Faith Ballinger, one, goes to sleep, she stays asleep. The baby was asleep in the backseat of her mother's parked car when it rolled down a 12-foot bank. That's 3.7 meters. Mrs. J.C. Ballinger, her mother, rushed up to the car to find the baby sleeping peacefully and unhurt. And the last article I have is fairly lengthy, but it discussed cigarette smoking, and basically it was on the rise in 1963. It had risen to 509 billion cigarette smoke compared to 494.5 billion the previous year. Now that is a third higher than it was in 1953, and half again as much as it was in 1947. Now, no one could pinpoint the exact cause of this, but there was a 2% rise in the smoking age population that year, and that could be part of it. What's interesting is that the Surgeon General's report on smoking was due before the end of the year, although it would be a little late. It came out on January 11th of 1964, and it was widely anticipated that it would suggest that smoking causes heart disease and lung cancer. And of course, it did come out and confirmed what most people suspected. But of the entire article, the one thing that uh, stood out to me, and since this show is limited to the assassination of President Kennedy and everything else was going on that day, I'll just read this one paragraph to you. President Kennedy himself may have a good reason to delay a report which might harm the tobacco industry. He would definitely not want to take a chance, observers say, on antagonizing tobacco state senators and congressmen while the civil rights and tax cut bills are still pending. Now, if you're curious today, and I don't have uh, last year's numbers, but in 2018, 49.1 million cigarettes were sold. Compare that with the 509 billion back in 1963. Of course, we do have alternatives like electronic cigarettes today but smoking is still way down, although I have heard in recent years that it is increasing. Of course, Kennedy was not the only person to die on November 22nd of 1963. 
Two notables were author Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. He was 69 years old. And C.S. Lewis, he was the creator of the Narnia series of children's books, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. He was 64 years of age. But they both passed away on the same day as Kennedy and the next day's newspapers. They would just dominate. You know, that story of Kennedy's assassination would dominate the news, and these would kind of get buried. But there was one other story that made big headlines, and that's because it made the news just before the assassination. This is a man who had passed away the day before. That was Robert Stroud, the famed Birdman of Alcatraz. He died in his sleep from natural causes at the age of 73. Now, what I was surprised to find out is he spent 54 of those in a penitentiary and 42 in solitary confinement. Unlike how he's portrayed by, you know, Burt Lancaster in the movie of the same name, Stroud had the reputation for being extremely violent. After all, one doesn't end up in Alcatraz for no reason at all. It all goes back to 1909 when he was a pimp up in Alaska and he fatally shot a bartender who failed to pay one of his ladies for her services. After his conviction for manslaughter, he was sent to the McNeil Federal Penitentiary in Washington State where he spent 12 years. And he was violent and very, very difficult to manage. And he assaulted a hospital orderly who turned him in for attempting to obtain drugs and he stabbed a fellow inmate. So he was then transferred to Leavenworth in Kansas where he fatally stabbed a guard in front of 1,100 inmates in the prison's mess hall. As a result, Stroud was sentenced to death by hanging, but due to the pleading by his mother, President Woodrow Wilson commuted his sentence in 1920 to life without parole, but he still stayed in solitary confinement. Now, Stroud's study of birds began accidentally. That's because a storm blew a nest of baby sparrows into his exercise yard, and he took a keen interest in the birds. The warden at the time realized that the birds kept Stroud out of trouble, and he rewarded him with a pair of canaries. And after Stroud successfully breeded the birds, his avian collection began to grow and grow and grow, ultimately occupying not only his cell, but the two adjoining cells on Solitary Row. Now, canaries were in high demand at the time, so he was able to sell his young birds to the outside world, and then he passed his earnings on to his mother. But after his birds caught a mysterious disease, he found that research on their ailments had been seriously lacking, and he began to do his own experiments, you know, on his own flock. And from this, he penned two volumes— They were diseases of canaries and Stroud's digestive diseases of birds. His work was lauded by scientists, bird fanciers, and the like. It brought him fame. But in 1942, his bird keeping came to an end when it was discovered that he was using some of his avian equipment as a still, so he was transferred to Alcatraz. And he'd remain there until being transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, where he'd remain until his death. And now we'll move on to a really, really sad story. Headline reads, Falls from Trees Fatal to Brothers. Houston, United Press International. The death of Francis Engel, eight, who fell out of a tree, was a tragic coincidence for his parents, Mr. and Mrs. John R. Engel. 
The Angles lost another son, Lawrence, six, when he fell from a tree in 1947. Both boys died of brain injuries at St. Joseph Hospital, and both died on a Tuesday. And here's a story from Polgate, England, about the passing of 69-year-old Mrs. Winifred McPherson on November 12th. You see, for the previous 40 years, she had operated the Wayfaring Downs Riding School with her 84-year-old friend, Janet Bell. But just prior to her passing, she made Ms. Bell promise to destroy all of her ponies. That's all 18 of them. And to make sure this is done, she repeated that wish in her will. Chief Inspector Evie Peacock of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, that's the RSPCA, said, quote, The situation is serious. Miss Bell is legally entitled to have the creatures destroyed, and, if it's done humanely, there's nothing anyone can do. And in fact, Ms. Bell refused to budge. One of her friends said, quote, She's a woman of high principles. She made a deathbed promise to her friend and felt she was solemnly bound to it. And it turns out that her will basically said the same exact thing. If Mrs. McPherson had outlived her, she also agreed to close the stable and have the animals put down. But there is a happy ending to this story. After 24 hours of begging and pleading, Ms. Bell agreed to allow the RSPCA to purchase all the ponies, find good homes for them, and ensure that all were well cared for. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Kennedy's assassination took place, which was November 22nd of 1963, that was a Friday, it was just six days before the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States and also, of course, about a month away from Christmas. So articles and advertisements started appearing in the newspapers for both of these holidays. There was one, an Associated Press article from Washington from the uh, Agriculture Department that talked about the production of trees. The article pointed out that production would be at an all-time high. There'd be 35 million Christmas trees cut and sold within the United States, plus an additional 10 million would come in from Canada. Supposedly, there were 30 species to choose from, 
and the most popular type of Christmas tree at the time was the Scotch or Scots pine. That was 21% of the market. Coming in at second place was the Douglas fir at 20%, and the balsam fir was at 15%. Now today, there's about 25 to 30 million trees sold each year, and the most popular tree is no longer the Scot or Scotch. It is the Douglas fir. The Scots pine is now in 10th place. So let's talk turkeys. This article is titled, Self-Proclaimed Turkey Capital is Busy This Time of the Year. Ellsworth, Iowa, Associated Press. From this self-proclaimed turkey capital of the world comes a strange sound about this time every year. The gobble-gobble is from a million and a half turkeys being processed for the Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner tables of the nation. Fields near the central Iowa community are black with turkeys. Ellsworth, population 493, is hiring more than 250 persons in its cooperative processing plant. Farm trucks wait in line daily at the plant to unload. The turkeys are processed on an assembly line, which takes an hour. The next step is a 36-hour freezing, then the birds are loaded into refrigerated trucks. 90% of the delivery is to seaboard cities. The turkey industry here today goes back to an Ellsworth boy in college in 1928. Ray Thompson decided to raise turkey on his father's farm. His brother Bill joined the enterprise. They started with 50 birds. Bill now operates a hatchery at Clifton, Texas. Ray is farm manager of the Ellsworth Cooperative and raises 75,000 turkeys on his 960-acre farm. Quote, There is work to raising turkeys, and there are worry and losses, says farmer William Brinton. Weather is our worst enemy. Our neighbor lost 4,000 poults, that's young turkeys, a few years ago. A sudden 11-inch rain drowned them. The cooperative processing plant covers a city block and has a $5 million yearly output. Iowa produces nearly 9 million turkeys annually, 1.5 million within a 20-mile radius of Ellsworth. Only California and Minnesota outproduce Iowa. Well, I did some checking, and it turns out that Minnesota is now the top producer of turkeys, followed by North Carolina. Iowa has fallen to number seven. I also read that Lewis Rich closed that processing plant back in 1966, so the amount of production of turkeys in Ellsworth has significantly dropped. However, their population has grown quite a bit. Remember, their population was 493 in 1963. Today, it is a whopping 508 based on the 2020 census. So how about one more turkey story? And this one's from the Los Angeles Evening Citizen News. Uh, This was not a syndicated article. And I'm not going to read the entire thing. About uh, half, I would say. A little bit more than half. The headline is, Humane Way to Kill. Hypnotize Turkeys Before Using Axe. The American Institute of Hypnosis, with 5,000 physician and dentist members, today offered a helping hand to the turkeys of the land on the eve of this Thanksgiving. Quote, Turkeys should be hypnotized before being killed, said Dr. William L. Bryan Jr. It is not only the humane thing to do, but a gobbler which dies peacefully has less adrenaline in its blood and will taste better. There are four ways to pacify a turkey before the axe falls, But the ancient Jesuit method, first case known of animal hypnosis in 1646, 
was recommended and described by Dr. Brian in straight-face fashion. And I'll just read this to you, and it's two paragraphs. Quote, Hold the turkey to the ground. Talk to him softly. Press the head evenly and gently to the ground. Draw a chalk line starting from the bird's beak. The turkey will remain motionless. He imagines he is fastened and will not try to move. His eyes will remain open and on the chalk line. This is kindness to animals, the 33 million turkeys who will furnish America with its traditional Thanksgiving feast. And I should mention that Dr. Brian was the executive director of the Institute of Hypnosis in California at the time. And the article goes on to describe the other three methods. Uh, if you want those, just let me know and I will fold the article on to you. Now, uh, this is not an unusual thing. This is known as tonic immobility. And it's basically a semi-paralysis uh, that animals do. Turkeys, chickens, and others are known to do it. Basically, they enter a state where they don't move, and they believe it's a way that they protect themselves when they feel threatened. And uh, if you're really curious about that, there are videos on YouTube, and I saw these a while ago, I don't know why, of chickens uh, being hypnotized. So uh, check them out. And now it's time for sports. Well, there's not really a lot to report here, and that's because most games are played at night. And of course, that was after the assassination, so the games were either canceled or postponed. For example, the 80th Harvard-Yale matchup in New Haven was postponed, as were three scheduled Big Six conference games that were to determine who would go to the Rose Bowl. Those were also postponed. Here in New York State, Governor Rockefeller ordered all of the tracks within the state to suspend operation until after Kennedy's funeral. But in Michigan, Governor George Romney recommended the same, but some of the big games did go on. And officials for those schools said that they thought Kennedy would have wanted the games to go on, and that was their reason for doing so. And of course, all the military games were canceled. That included Army, Navy, and the Air Force. And while very little was going on in the world of sports, I did pick out two little shorts that I'll share with you. Here's the first one. Headline reads, Four-year-old proves to be soccer expert. Burke Hampstead, England, Associated Press. The parents of four-year-old Michael Gann says he has the golden touch. By showing his father William how to fill out his weekly football pool form, Michael has just won $6,203. That's about $60,000 today. By British law, children are not allowed to enter weekly pools based on the results of the nation's weekly soccer games. Michael fills out a dummy form. His father copies a dummy and sends it in. I guess that's how you get around the rules. Mrs. Gann said her son has won 16 third prizes, but they weren't large. This was his first top prize victory. Quote, he always wins a bingo, added the mother. He has the golden touch. And the other sports story has the headline of Oil Wells Golf Hazard, Verdon, Manitoba, Canadian Press. Golfers here next summer will be able to boast of hazards unknown to most golf courses, oil wells. J.W. Clark, president of Paradise Petroleums, announced Thursday his company is expected to drill its first well between the first and third fairways on the course next week. But he said the wells will be placed so none should hamper play. Mineral and surface rights of the golf course property are owned by the shareholders of the Verdon Golf and Country Club. Four. 
So let's move on to the world of entertainment, and we'll start with a short story in the world of film. Headline is, he'll try another stunt next time. Peterborough, England, United Press International. Walter Cornelius, 39, painted himself red all over to advertise the movie From Russia With Love, then found out that the paint wouldn't come off. The owner of a public bath turned Cornelius away, and a movie theater manager finally spent three hours getting the stuntman clean. On television, the Los Angeles Evening Citizen News had a picture of a woman with a crown on her head, and the caption underneath reads, Today's Queen. Mrs. Billy Hatch of Saugus won the crown with her wish for a commercial washing machine for the Los Angeles Retarded Children's Ranch. Queen for a Day can be seen at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday on KABC-TV. And for sound, Variety had this story. Britain's Beatles on Sullivan Show. The Beatles, Britain's hottest singing foursome, has been signed for three Ed Sullivan shows next February. The deal was closed when their personal manager, Brian Epstein, made a quickie visit to New York earlier in the month. The quartet, who introduced the Liverpool sound to Britain, will leave for New York February 8th, and within their first 48 hours will do two Ed Sullivan shows, one live and the other recorded. They will then head for a Florida vacation, and a week later, will do their third Sullivan program live from the resort. Meantime, the Beatles are maintaining their unique position by breaking new records each week in the platter biz. Last week at a private reception at EMI headquarters, they collected four silver discs in one session, an achievement believed to be without parallel in the industry. And then it just goes on to describe what they won the awards for, but the last paragraph reads, To avoid riots and demonstrations that normally mark every public appearance by the group, EMI adopted unusual security precautions for the presentation ceremonies. Invites were on a strictly personal, non-transferable basis. So I checked both Variety and Billboard magazine to get the top movies, the top TV shows, and of course the top songs. So here they are. For movies, we'll do the top five, and I'll start with number five. That was Take Her, She's Mine, starring Jimmy Stewart and Sandra D. Number four was Under the Yum Yum Tree with Jack Lemmon. Number three was Wheeler's Dealers with James Garner and Lee Remick. Number two was How the West Was Won, again with Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and Gregory Peck. And finally, number one was Cleopatra, starring Elizabeth Taylor. That ended up being the top movie of the year. And this was the last week that it was actually at number one, but it was already in its 23rd week of release, and it would win the Oscar for Best Picture that year. Now, because theaters were closed due to the assassination, and then very few people went to the movies after they reopened, Variety did not publish a top movie list the following week. As for television, number five was Candid Camera on CBS. Number four was a Dick Van Dyke show on CBS. Number three was Miss Teenage America, also on CBS. Number two was Bonanza on, nope, not CBS, NBC. And the number one show of the week was The Beverly Hillbillies on CBS. As a little note under the listing, it says of the top 15 shows, 13 of them were on CBS, Two were on NBC, and poor ABC got none. 
There was also a story in the following week's Variety that said basically that the JFK coverage had been very, very costly to the television networks. It was estimated that it cost them $40 million. That's about $367 million today. And it was believed to be the most costly special event in the history of communications, at least up until that point. On Billboard's Hot 100 chart, number five was It's All Right by The Impressions. Four was Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. And I should point out that was number one the previous week. Number three was Deep Purple by Nino Tempo and April Stevens. Number two was Washington Square by the Village Stompers. And number one was I'm Living It Up To You by Dale and Grace. Oddly, I only know the Donnie and Marie version, but it is the same song. Some other notables, at number 49, you had Be My Baby by the Ronettes. That would make it all the way up to number two. At number 44, you had In My Room by the Beach Boys, which was actually the B-side of Be True to Your School, and that made it all the way up to number 23. Number 41 was the classic Louie Louie by the Kingsman. That made it all the way up to number two. And number 19 was Be True to Your School by the Beach Boys, which got up to number six. And I should also mention that if you're living in the UK, Beatlemania was well underway, and the number one song was She Loves You by the Beatles. If you happen to be in the vicinity of New York City, here's what was happening on the stage. On Broadway, you had One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Kirk Douglas at the Court Theater. Alec Guinness was in Dylan at the Plymouth Theater. You could see Blaze Star in Burlesque on Parade at the Village Theater. And if you wanted to hop across the river, you could see Bob Dylan, who, quote, was America's most compelling folk artist. He was at the Mosque Theater in Newark, New Jersey. Back in New York at the Apollo Theater, on the same stage, they had Sam Cooke, Mary Wells, Ruby and the Romantics, and Clay Tyson. At the supposedly world-famous Peppermint Lounge, they had an all-new twist show that featured the Peppermint Loungers. And at Club Paddock, there was the Imperials, famous for their song, Tears on My Pillow. And I guess we can't forget the world of print. The top five magazines were, at five was Family Circle, four was Look, three was McCall's, two was TV Guide, and number one was Reader's Digest. On the New York Times bestseller list, uh, the number one fiction book was The Group by Mary McCarthy, and the number one nonfiction was JFK The Man and the Myth by Victor Lasky. Now, my initial thought was, well, that JFK book was number one because he passed on, but it was actually number one the week before, so that's not the case. Now, their next grouping of stories really have nothing in common, so I've just put them under the label of quirky. So here's a whole bunch of quirky stories. First one is, 528 trees in L.A. felled by high wind. The City Bureau of Street Maintenance today said 528 trees have been felled by the high winds. Hardest hit sectors were Hollywood, East San Fernando Valley, Wilshire area, and Southwest Los Angeles. First cleanup, Ben, our Paris Bureau director said, would be directed to eliminating trees forming barricades to the flow of traffic. Other storm debris will be cleaned up later, he explained. Hopefully they're not still working on that one. Next, we have Cleric Calm. Lightning does strike twice. The Reverend John G. Binkley stands in danger today, believing somebody up there doesn't like him. When the Reverend Mr. Binkley was in Pennsylvania six years ago, 
lightning struck and damaged his Methodist church in Pleasant Hills. That started him wondering. As he counseled the couple in the study of his Eastmont Methodist Church, 700 South Gearhart Avenue, East Los Angeles, a bolt struck the building's spire, toppling two 24-foot or 7.3-meter steeple support beams and opening a 6-foot-wide hole, that's 1.83 meters, in the roof. There was no fire. No one was injured on either occasion, but the Reverend Mr. Binkley now asks if those electric fingers are following him. Lightning or not, a man of the cloth knows his duty. After the incident last night, the minister calmly finished counseling his callers. Then he called the fire department. And by the way, another typo says clamly, not calmly. This article reads, British boost temperature for naked painting. London, United Press International. It isn't because she has no clothes on but the Royal Academy said that it would boost its gallery's temperature by 2 degrees when Goya's naked Maja arrives for a London exhibition. Sir Charles Wheeler, president of the Royal Academy, said the galleries would agree to a request by a Spanish art expert to raise the temperature of the exhibition rooms, quote, because my Goyas are used to it. The naked Maja is one of more than 100 Goyas coming to London for the exhibition next month. And now for a couple of animal stories. First one is Dog Stroke Causes Suit. Cincinnati, Ohio, United Press International. A quote loyal and faithful dog had a stroke and his owner filed a $100,000 suit against a racetrack and the Thoroughbred Protective Bureau. Keith Robinson charged he was evicted from River Downs Racetrack June 26, 1962 after he paid the $2 admission and was placed in the county jail for a week on a trespassing charge. During this time, his dog suffered a stroke, he said. The suit also said Robinson was later found innocent of the trespass charge. Well, a little research, I did determine what the outcome was. On November 9th of 1964, that's nearly a year later, Judge Charles S. Bell ordered the jury to return a verdict in favor of the track and that's simply because Robinson had failed to make his case. And the other animal story is, This bashful bull is floored by cow. Hereford, England, United Press International. Adrian, the timid bull, was so shy that he fell over backward and sat on a veterinarian when a cow walked up and looked him in the eye. Arthur Zandona, who bought Adrian thinking he was a prize bull, filed suit here yesterday claiming Adrian was too bashful to breed. I guess there are shy bulls, huh? And here's another animal story. Eight-foot snake sought in Michigan City. Mount Clemens, Michigan, United Press International. Police renewed their search yesterday for a missing eight-foot anaconda. That's about 2.4 meters. The snake, capable of crushing to death small rodents or slashing someone with its razor-sharp teeth, escaped from a downtown pet shop owned by Richard Kulik, 35. Kulik said he first discovered the South American reptile missing Wednesday morning. He said he searched his shop and called police when he couldn't find it. According to Kulik, the anaconda pushed back a wooden door at the top of its cage, found the mail chute at the front of the shop, and slithered to freedom. 
However, Kulik said the snake could not be considered dangerous, but police did not agree with him and organized a search immediately. I did do some checking. I found out that the snake was found the very next morning in Detroit, which was 21 miles away. That's 33.8 kilometers. You have to wonder how the snake got that far. So I guess the big question, is it true? Is the story true? Well, it turns out he had told his landlord that the whole thing was a hoax, but Kulik denied that to authorities. He claimed that he told the landlord it was a hoax, quote, because he wanted to evict me. Well, that's exactly what the landlord did. He did evict him for violation of his lease, and he ended up reopening his pet shop in a nearby building. And here's a story for those with a sweet tooth. And this is from the Los Angeles Evening Citizen News again. And it says, half a ton of candy given away. Mass munching, crunching, and lip smacking was the order of the day at the opening of the new Barton's Candy Shop at 9557 Wilshire Boulevard, Beverly Hills. The occasion was an all-day free candy party in which more than half a ton of candy was given away to the public. Barton's new store features more than 300 varieties of chocolates in boxed and bulk assortments. The choices represent the first continental-type chocolates to be introduced on a nationwide basis in this country. Each piece is made from century-old recipes gathered in Switzerland, Italy, Austria, France, and other noted European candy centers. Mm-mm-mm. Here's one titled No Teacher, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Associated Press. When Mike Pont wanted to learn to fly, his dad taught him, and he became Chattanooga's youngest solo pilot on his 16th birthday. But when he got his driver's license a day later, he went with a professional teacher. Father Al Pont, a civilian flight instructor, said he hadn't wanted to tackle trying to teach his son to drive a car. I really like this next one. This joke wasn't funny after all. Dublin, Ireland, United Press International. Ventriloquist Eugene Lambert, 34, was convicted of making a false declaration for taking out a driver's license for his dummy, Finnegan. Lambert said he only did it as a joke to prove that anybody can get a license in Ireland. And as you know, most newspapers have advice columnists, and uh, Ann Landers was among the most famous of them. So let's see what she had to say on this day. Dear Ann Landers, am I wrong to be angry? My birthday was last Friday. I had given my boyfriend lots of hints starting two months ago. We've done plenty of window shopping together, so he knows what my taste is in jewelry, fur jackets, and luggage. He has a good job, and he is not short of money. The morning of my birthday, I received a telegram saying, quote, Sorry your birthday gift has not arrived. It has been ordered and is on the way. Please be patient. Love, Hubert. We had dinner together that evening, and I thanked him for the message. He assured me I would love the present. Well, this morning he phoned all excited. The gift had arrived and he'd bring it right over. I almost went through the floor when he showed up at the front door with two baby hamsters in a cage. I have no interest in hamsters. To me, they look like alley rats. What shall I do? And it's signed, Robbed. Well, her answer was very, very short. Dear Robbed, give the last of the big spenders his two hamsters back before you have eight. (laughs) 
Well, earlier I'd explained to you how in Bristol, Tennessee, or Bristol, Virginia, the state line runs right down State Street. It separates the two. So if you're on one side of the street, you're in Virginia. Other side, you're in Tennessee. Well, in the newspaper, here's the school menu. And I'll just choose one day. Let's go with Monday. If you live on the Tennessee side of the border, you would get barbecued pork, mixed greens, pickled beets, baked potatoes, cornbread squares, milk, butter, and cookies at the elementary school. On the other hand, if you live on the Virginia side, you'll get meatloaf, whipped potatoes, green beans, sliced tomatoes, rolled butter, and half a pint of milk. So if you like barbecued pork, make sure you're on the Tennessee side. If you like meatloaf, make sure you're on the Virginia side. Now I should add that since Thanksgiving was coming the following week, both of them had a turkey luncheon schedule for the kids, although my memory of school lunch is that everything is yellow or orange. Everything on the plate is some shade of yellow or orange. Even the foam tray that they used to give us was yellow or orange. In fashion news, there was an AP wire photo printed in many newspapers of two women in their bathing suits. And it says, newest of the new. The California model at left wears a suede leather swimsuit and the model on the right wears the wrapped towel suit, both billed as the newest thing in swimwear for the coming summer. The suede suit retails for about $60, that's about $550 today, while the towel suit retails for about $20, that's about $185 today. I think there's a good reason why neither of these are seen at the beach anymore. Now, on such a sad, sad day as when a president is assassinated, you think that there's nothing that could make anyone smile, and there probably wasn't. But the newspapers did run their comics, and I thought I'd share three of them with you. And these are all single-panel strips, mainly because it'd be too hard to uh, describe multi-panel strips. Here we go. The first one is titled The Girls. That's the name of the strip, and it was by Franklin Folger. The strip ran from 1952 through 1977. And I should mention this strip was famous for poking gentle fun at women. And let me see if I can describe what's in the picture. Basically, there's a woman looking towards her husband who's uh, facing the other way and reading the newspaper. She's in front of a TV and someone's playing accordion on the TV like nothing's happening. And then she just nonchalantly says, and I'll read the bottom, Oh, I meant to tell you, Herbert, I was driving to the store this afternoon and you know that awful corner at 4th and Broadway? And of course, this buys into the stereotype that women can drive, uh, which is totally untrue. The next strip I have for you is Trudy by Jerry Marcus, which made his debut in 1963. And in the panel, you have a young boy who just walked through the door. He's dressed in all his gear for winter. You know, the boots, the scarf, the hat, the gloves, and so on. And he's looking up at his mother. And he says, quote, didn't do much today. Got to class, teacher helped us off with our clothes, then the three o'clock bell rang, she helped us on with our clothes, then I came home. And I guess the reason this one kind of struck me as funny is that is exactly how I was as a kid. I come home from school, my dad would be sitting there to go, so what happened to school today? And my answer was always the same, nothing. And the last one I have for you is Off the Record by Ed Reed. And this comic debuted in 1935, although it had a different cartoonist. It was Carl Kuhn, and Ed Reed later took it over. And it did run through 1984. And let me describe what's going on here. There's a father, very nicely dressed. He's got a bow tie on. He's sitting on the couch, relaxing, reading the newspaper. And his son, little son, is standing in front of the fireplace wearing his Santa outfit. 
And he says to the father, I just heard that Santa Claus is really my father. So who the heck are you? And that's probably a good place to bring this podcast to a close, you know, with a bit of humor on what turned out to be an incredibly sad day. To be honest, I don't think I've ever met a person, at least one who was of age, who couldn't recall exactly what they were doing at the moment they heard the news, you know, that President Kennedy had been assassinated. Yet I'm betting that very few could tell you anything else that was happening around the world that day. It was all overshadowed by the tragic events that took place, and uh, rightfully so. Yet I have to admit I found this quite fascinating. I really like going back in time and going through the old newspapers and seeing what else was going on back on November 22nd of 1963. So let me know what you think about this new segment. Should I do more? Should I never do one again? It really is a work in progress. It's something I've been thinking about for years and just slowly putting together. And even as I'm recording it, I can think of things that I would tweak for the future. So it should be interesting to see how it changes over time. And if you'd like to contact me about this episode or anything else, you can do so through my email. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on my website. That's uselessinformation.org. And just a general reminder to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast if you haven't done so already. The podcast and the entire back catalog of episodes can be found on all the leading podcast platforms. That includes Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. My Twitter handle is at UselessInfoCast, and be sure to like the show on Facebook. And you can just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there, and it should pop up. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.